Aloha Warriors, Joshua Loya, your friendly neighborhood Jedi. You know, I've only done that a handful of times, but now I feel this odd compulsion to reference Spider-Man in a weird sort of way. Um, no uh, Disney who owns both Marvel and Star Wars is not paying me anything, though they're certainly welcome to do so. The reason I'm actually dropping in this time is to let you know that we you know, we bank these episodes. We don't record them the day of release. Uh, I would love to get to the point where we can just record and then bam. Uh, but our workflow at the moment is not such that we do that. And uh, sometimes some of the timeliness of things gets a little bit off. And we rep- make some references to the U.S. election uh, are some of our concerns uh, depending on how things play out. Um, thankfully, those concerns seem to have become unfounded. Uh, I have not read or heard of any severe uh, riots or, or civil unrest uh, on the other side of the election. We'll hopefully stay that way. But uh, I just uh, wanted to drop in and say that, and uh, really, really excited uh, for you to hear this episode. Some uh, you know, different angle as far as what um, adventure living looks like. But, you know, the Adventure Mind movement is about being strong and cont- and courageous and becoming more by doing the stuff that's uncomfortable, doing the stuff that's scary. And, um, you know, Jason's done, Jason James, our guest this, this week, uh, has definitely done that. And, you know, part of that is also, too, not sticking our hand, heads in the sand and uh, you know, kind of ignoring the truth of, of things. And sometimes that means talking to people we don't agree with. And so regardless of where you are, uh, if you've had positive or negative experiences with law enforcement, I think you'll find that uh, this is a really good uh, conversation and a kind of uh, eye-opening for a lot of people. So it certainly was for me. And uh, before we get into that, before I drop you in, I just want to remind you that if you want to make sure you don't miss a single episode, you can go to www.adventuremind.net slash join. That's adventuremind.net slash slash J-O-I-N. And you can uh, learn about how you can make sure you do not miss a single episode. We've got subscription options for Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast. You can even get an email notification when an episode is released. But for now, award-winning essayist and journalist, former law enforcement professional, Mr. Jason James. Aloha, Warriors. I have with me Mr. Jason James, journalist extraordinaire, uh, fellow, uh, a, a man who's punched me in the, fi- the face a couple of times. I asked him to do it on purpose, and uh, he's, he's got a, a pretty wide breadth of experience as a, uh, a uniformed police officer, former DEA agent. He was the, one of the good ones, so please no hate on his, his, uh, his <laughs> end. But uh, Jason, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. And, and as we always say, based on the amount of technical difficulty we had before starting the recording, just means that we'll have an awesome episode. So, All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, uh, I mean, you, you and I met uh, in one of Tiffany's classes, I think, right? Yes. Yes, we yeah. did. It's uh, Studio 540. Yeah. And uh, I apologize for uh, kink you in the groin. I, I had uh, a little <laughs> bit of sloppy technique a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so far, neither of us lost any teeth, and uh, y- you know, I, I, 
I was not intended birth control. I think you're probably still good in that regard. And, and uh, so far, I'm, I'm, uh, I haven't been checked recently, but I think I'll probably be okay in that regard if I haven't decided. <laughs> yep. But uh, so uh, I think you and I actually haven't uh, seen each other directly in person since like one of my last times there training with you back before this whole crazy thing started as far as the world blowing up. Yeah, no, that was, uh, you know, and again, that was, it was crazy times for everyone. And, you know, the studios were in different states of opening and closing. And there was that, that period of time where, where you were going in a, a different, uh, uh, avenue in terms of, uh, where you were, um, practicing. So it's, yeah, I mean, uh, I got a lot of respect and, and love for people over 540. You know, I, I, I know a little little funky between Surfite and 540, but there's I think there's mutual love all around if you really sure. dig dig past the initial separation of things. Yep, but yeah, no, I uh, it's interesting because I've been in California for going on seven years now, and you know, I had a background in judo uh, from college and. Uh, when I came here, it was nice to have a, a, a clean break into something new. Started with jujitsu, and then after that, got introduced to Muay Thai, and I ended up liking Muay Thai better. Sure, sure, and, and you know, it's we all have our different avenues uh, of things—things things we like and things we're good at—and sometimes they're the same thing. I really yeah. love Muay Thai. I found it incredibly difficult, and I, I do want to get back to it. I, certainly, jujitsu is probably where my strength lies, but you know, that's that's the way of it. Uh, it does help to have an awesome teacher like Tiffany, though, for sure. Oh, oh, absolutely. She's 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 amazing, and it's it's just interesting, like being out in San Diego, to have access to these superstars that are just among us. They they have to be somewhere, and they happen to be here for you know, for, uh, by and large, for jujitsu and other martial arts. So it's just great to be able to have, have connected with her, Joel Tudor, you know, yeah. other other folks as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, it is funny, though, like San Diego in particular, I didn't find this out until after I started doing BJJ, but uh, you know, there is like people come from all over the world, including Brazil and Japan to train here, which when I first realized that and realized how big of a, of a city, you know, general area that I live in, I was like, well, cool. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know how to respond to that. I was like, well, that's because I don't I don't I don't think you were ever there at, at 540 before uh, when Uzge was there. But uh, you might have heard people mention him. And mm -hmm. Uzge was the amazing judo black belt. He, he, I think he got as far as brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu over here. Uh, I don't know if he got his black belt before he left, but he, he certainly was darn close to it, if not. And uh, he just he showed up here. And he, he, he uh, if, if I hear right, he went up to the desk. He laid down a wad of cash and had a gi in a bag and said, jiu-jitsu? In very fairly broken English, <laughs> and then when he signed his name on like the waiver paperwork, it was in like Japanese writing, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that like that just <laughs> blows my mind. So, um, but uh, as far as things go, though, man, like you, uh, you've had a pretty wide range of things, and you gave me some pretty good advice um, as far as keeping my head about me. You know, I'd gotten in some hot water as far as uh, with a couple of people, as far as posting my political opinions on, on social media. And, and mm -hmm. you were, you maybe came at it from a different angle in terms of your perspective, but you were really good at kind of giving me worthwhile advice in terms of separating the silos so as to still be able to be myself and not have to um, suffer 
unnecessary reprisal for, uh, you know, kind of speaking my mind and also yeah. kind of giving me some suggestions on how to speak my mind in more of a measured way. Uh, so as to not confuse my, my message with my, perhaps my emotional reaction to some of the issues at hand. I, I think you kind of gave some good advice there. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you, it, it, the convergence of uh, polarizing politics, uh, social media, where everyone has the ability to, you know, reach within, you know, circle of people that they may not have connected with since high school, or, you know, maybe that then extends into, you know, thousands of people, depending on, you know, where the link goes. Uh, but it, it makes for interesting times because you could say something that is more conversational and then it is heard or interpreted by someone else in a different way. And before you know it, you're going down a rabbit hole of, yep. uh, discourse and everything else. And it, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And, and it doesn't help either too that, you know, uh, I mean, granted the last time I was on stage was in February, but being a stand up comedian, uh, you know, of a handful of years, I, I, and this is something that somebody actually uh, <laughs> suggested to me that I have in common with the, you know, our, our president, who I have made no secret that I don't particularly care for personally. That we're we're both want to use hyperbole, mm -hmm. <laughs> and sometimes using it in the appropriate place is, uh, you know, what gets both of us into trouble. As much as I would hate to compare myself to him in a lot of respects, I, I got to give the person who who made that comment you know, they're kind of right about that. Yep. Oh yeah, no, exactly. Uh, and it's, it's interesting cause I, so, you know, my background, of course, I had been a, I grew up in a law enforcement family. Uh, at one point, journal, uh, journalism was my only avenue that I could go into investigation. I could always write, but uh, law enforcement wasn't on the table for me for a long time. Cause I, I had actually had bad eyesight to it to a point where I, I, it was not going to be uh, feasible. Oh, wow. You and I actually never spoke about that. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, I mean, you know, relatively speaking, I, I was, you know, near Clearly not as it. bad as mine, but yes, yes. But <laughs> I mean, for forever it was, uh, you know, I couldn't see beyond two feet in front of me, everything like very much blurred out. And uh, it was to such an extent that I remember not knowing how bad my vision was. I just thought that's how everyone saw. And, you know, up to and including, you know, my, my father taking me and my brother out in the woods and pointing out, you know, a deer and I could not see it. And he was getting mad that I couldn't see it. He's like, it's right there. And uh, then I went and had an eye exam and then I finally got glasses and I'm like, whoa, this is how you're supposed to see. Oh, this and is what things look like. Okay. <laughs> I just really, I really thought that, that the world blurred out after two feet for everybody. Yeah, that, uh, and, that's and pretty I close to my, my visual experience when I did have eyesight. So, yeah, and then uh, so you know, law enforcement you often require to you know have a certain amount of eyesight so that you can shoot and everything else. Sure. And then you, if you had your glasses knocked off, if you had it corrected, then you're in a worse spot. So uh, sure. So it was at to a point where I was like, well, this is not going to be in the cards for me, uh, you know, to follow in my father's footsteps per se. So the next best thing was uh, journalism because I could do investigative work. Yeah, uh, I, I was a natural writer, um, and and so there it was. Uh, and uh, it, it wasn't until you know technology caught up, LASIK surgery, and everything else that uh, I took that leap. And then uh, you know then I was there off I was into uh, you know the the law enforcement realm. So that's sure. that's how that got rolling. 
not always a direct route. And I suspect too, that, you know, not for everybody uh, or for, for a lot of former law enforcement professionals, you know, their, their path to law enforcement is perhaps, a, you know, have, has its own unique set of twists and turns for your yeah. sake. Um, I, I was curious because one of the thing, one of the real reasons I wanted to have you on, you know, and, and, you know, we have lived through some pretty difficult times and some difficult times for law enforcement, as well as for people who, um, have had some, some pretty negative experiences with law enforcement. What do you think, or what do you wish, uh, perhaps, um, more people knew about what, uh, law enforcement professionals go through and, and, and kind of, and what do you, you know, just your, your take on that initially, we can delve in more, of course. Yeah. So, um, so first off, there are good cops in the world, and then there are some bad cops, uh, horribly bad cops. And, and for the most part, that is a fractional minority, but they're out there. there there's, yep. and there, there, was, there was one you know, that I encountered uh, in the, the police department that I was in, and not easy in, in, in having to, to deal with, with someone who you know is, is not operating with the, with the best sentiment. Uh, in, in their minds, and uh, so I, what, if I had to talk, you know, to someone about what it's what it's like to be a cop and in the perspective of a cop, it's uh, it's a hard job, and I will say that I, I often work midnights. That was that was the shift that I just Ooh, gravitated that, that, that towards. That could not have been an easy shift to work either. It's, I mean, it's, it's a shift that it allowed me to actually spend time like, you know, with my wife uh, in some normal capacity. If she was working, sure. I'd be sleeping during the day and then we'd, you know, we'd be able to like have dinner together and then off I would go and then she'd go to sleep. Uh, and, but during that time, you know, midnight to eight, you, it's, you got, it's, it's the cops and it's the people that, you know, that come out at two o'clock in the morning. And, sure. and for the most part, they're, uh, they're either, you know, newspaper delivery guys or someone's out to cause trouble. So it's, it's re- it really becomes a, a polarizing situation where it's, it's the good guys versus the bad guys. Uh, and uh, what was interesting, and this is what I would, you know, say is, is something that people don't realize that as a cop in that mode, that's all you see. Uh, and you start to see those people out when you're out with your wife and you're going to the movies, you're out at the mall, whatever it is. And you, you start to be able to pick out the characteristics of the bad guys that you see. And for me, it was, you, you'd, it was like white heroin addicts. You, you, it, that's what, that was a problem that we had in our city, uh, in, uh, Milford, Connecticut. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a persisting problem, you know, then goes on to Oxycontin and all that other stuff, but sure. it was, it was heroin addicts. and you could be, you could see after seeing them enough, you could see, you could see the characteristics They they're a little bit thin they're, They have layers of, of sweatshirts on. They, they may not have washed for a couple of days and you can, you can pick them out. You can pick their car out because, you know, something's just not right. License plate is hanging by one screw, you know, whatever those things are, a crack in the windshield, you can, you can see those little indicators and you can be like, that's the guy. And then you're able to engage them and, you know, you're doing what you can to, you know, try to figure out if, if they're involved in buying drugs or selling drugs and you're trying to, trying to get them off the street. And that's, that's kind of the job. 
You you shared with me one incident, and I don't know if you're at liberty to discuss it. If you remember the incident that I uh, that that you shared with me, is that something you can talk talk about publicly, or is that not? Um, one? I'm not, actually uh, there, there's there's been many, so <laughs> just, I, I just get into it. and We can see if we can. Okay, we can all right. Um, it was it. it had to do with with one of your fellow officers that kind of you perceived him to be using excessive force in a really unnecessary situation. It kind of blew up things um, a little bit and it was just ahead of your uh, (laughs) transfer to the DEA or your kind of pending process. Yeah. uh, There's some details that I don't want to get into with that, but suffice it to say to to, to try to walk along the edges of it, because I know that that's, (laughs) that's a uh, topic du jour, uh, especially with, with law enforcement nowadays. There's, there was someone that I perceived, the cop that I perceived, that I was working with, I perceived him as being overly uh, forceful in uh, dealing with the, the subject, you know, who ultimately was, was arrested. Right. And uh, I reached the point where I had the situation handled and was trying to stop him from what he was doing. And then his involvement ended up escalating the matter to a point where um, it was, it became a, a much more difficult situation. And it was then having to unwind from not dealing with the, sus- the, 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 the subject that we had in custody, but having to deal with an adversarial situation that then occurred with this other officer who then turned around and, and then would go on to say that I had not aided him uh, in, in, in this arrest. What I was trying to do was stop him from what I perceived as, uh, as, as excessive in his, um, in his use of force. Sure. So, and it's, it's hard to do, uh, because do you, do you get through that moment and do you just kind of let, let it go? And for me, I saw what was someone that was, uh, being more forceful with someone that was in a, uh, more vulnerable position in this case, the, the, the person that was, uh, uh, detained. So it, it's, and that brought on a lot of scrutiny onto myself because then all of a sudden I was being accused by, by that officer of, of, of not following through and, and helping a fellow officer. I knew that I was right and I had to stop what was going on. And um, then it was, you know, it was internal affairs. It was the whole schmear. It was, you know, whatever I had to go through while I was waiting to get picked up by DEA. It was just a matter of, you know, when the next academy was going to come around and, and finally I was going to get, uh, get picked up. And, and the last thing I needed was, was, was the problem, you know, with, you know, with another officer that, that goes on my record. But in the moment, I had to do what I felt was right. And it can be a hard decision to do, but for me it was a very easy decision to do. Well, and, and I think that's the, it's got to be tough um, you know, for, would you say there's a lot of pressure from in, in, you know, generally speaking, either from your own experiences, I mean, clearly that one would indicate that it's the case, but also for, you know, law enforcement people in, in general that you might know that it is difficult to have the freedom to speak up because you're kind of see seen as perhaps disloyal to your fellow officers. And then, it, you know, I mean, that, that type of sort of mentality or whatever, it explains why, um, say, for example, you know, the, the most, I guess, polarizing uh, 
incident in recent memory, you know, the George Floyd situation where you have a guy that had 17 counts, you know, let's, let's forget the fact, okay, you know, sure. Uh, you know, George Floyd had a criminal history and, you know, I don't think anybody's defending the actions of that officer, uh, for the most part, but the, the reality is that officer had like 17 incidents prior to that and was still on the force. I wonder, you know, when that kind of stuff happens is that, at least in part a result, and I know it's speculation as far as Minnesota is concerned, but is that symptomatic of the difficulty in separating, hey, let's let's remember that you know that these are these might be criminals, but they're also people. We need to kind of use appropriate force speaking up. I mean, that's that cannot be an a, an easy separation and, and kind of filtering out for law enforcement professionals. Right. So, and, so I, again, I, I don't know the, the inside details of, of that case, but to uh, aware of that case. And, but generally speaking, I think that again, knowing that there are, there are those bad cops out there that either what I don't, do I know if that cop was out to, to kill that, you know, George Floyd that day, he probably wasn't out to kill him, but he was at, at least had irreverence about his life. Uh, in, in, in the way that he was conducting what he sure. was doing. Um, and I, I think that for the most part, again, you can talk to any cop in any department. They know of the one guy or the one gal that is a cop. <laughs> they already that, know that there's, there's already, they built up a reputation pretty quick. It sounds like. It, and it's, it's the one that you don't want to get called out on a call with. It's the one that, you know, you, you, and you just have to kind of work around them because you're trying to, again, mitigate whatever it is that, you know, this person is, is capable of, of, of doing. And it's not, again, some people are, are truly evil, but some of these people, again, are just irreverent to, to uh, uh, what they're inflicting on someone else or they're struck by the, the power that they're wielding on someone and, and that, that becomes their driver. Um, I, I joined because I wanted to do good and I wanted to see sure. what my father's life was like as a cop. Uh, and some other people do it because they want to have power uh, and, and they get it and that's what they do. Uh, they, they exert their power and sometimes they feel like they're justified in, in what they're doing. They're not. Um, but so for the most part, it's, it's not like the, the thin blue line where, Hey, you don't talk about that, but you're, you're just, just trying to avoid having to step in that pile yourself. You don't, you don't want to have to, get involved with it. If you can work around it. Uh, and so what happens is you end up, you know, someone could, who conceivably, you know, be on the force and be a bad actor and they can go on throughout an entire career without anyone raising it up. And it's not like they're being protected. It's that they're people, the other cops are just trying to avoid them because they don't want to get sucked into it. Sure. Sure. I, I, I can kind of grasp that. I, you know, again, this is a an area of life that I have a really hard time putting myself in the, uh, you know, the the shoes of. Uh, but you know, I'm doing my best. And like sure. I, I told you in our on our conversations that you and I've had, you know, you you are a law enforcement, you know, now former law enforcement professional who has my respect. I mean, you know, you like I said before, um, or or I have said before, even when you disagree with someone, uh, one of the things that I see that is is pretty admirable is your ability to treat them with respect even when they're going off the deep. There's one, an, an, a guy that, that you and I do jujitsu with or have done jujitsu with, who's pretty far on the left end of things mm-hmm. and you guys seem to get along pretty well. And, oh, yeah. and you know, it's, 
that's that's pretty neat because you know and, and and granted that probably speaks to martial arts and combat sports you know when you have somebody you spend five minutes on the mat with somebody and especially in a in a jiu-jitsu match where you guys are you know controlled but you're you're basically trying to kill each other within re- with some governors there you mm-hmm. learn a lot about a person you learn to respect them as a human being on a different level than you know just sitting down and having a you know a cup of coffee or a beer with them well you, you know you're absolutely right and again when you when you go when you do jujitsu it's not you know it's not the car that you drove you know to the studio in it's not the money that you have in the bank uh it's not uh you know that the dashing looks that you know i might have uh it's uh <laughs> take your word for it jason <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it, it's, it's who you are in that gi with the other guy and that the, it's the equalizer. It, it just comes down to you too. Yep. And, and what you, what you've cultivated over the, the months or the years studying jujitsu and now you're applying it. And I think that that really kind of strips people down to their essence, uh, as, as best they can. And if you have never done jujitsu or a martial art before, then you may not know that. But uh, when you do this, it's, and then, and so then you get into it, you know, invariably, you know, I get, I end up getting, you know, someone arm bars me or whatever, you tap out, but then you reset and, you know, and you're shaking hands afterwards and it becomes a, uh, a brotherhood and sisterhood uh, that is uh, like nothing else I've, uh, I've experienced. And so yeah. I, that's, that's part of the, the, the affection for, you know, doing martial arts is you have that, you know, you're, you're, you're in essence teaching each other how to, you know, hurt, maim, kill, whatever it is, but then you don't and, and you're, you're yep. helping each other evolve and become stronger people. Do, do you think that, um, you know, real famous jujitsu guy, you know, Jocko Willink, former Navy SEAL, uh, he's made the assertion that um, jujitsu training should be mandatory for all law enforcement. And, uh, I think maybe there might be some exceptions in there, but if you're actively engaging with the public, that more of a percentage of your time in an ideal world, obviously there's politics involved and everything else. Yep. Um, he sub- submitted on multiple occasions that, you know, like a good percentage, maybe even a fifth of your time, ideally should be devoted to training, whether that's sure. jujitsu, whether that's de-escalation techniques. Um, and, and the people that he's spoken to, you know, as far as you know, non-lethal techniques, restraint techniques, a lot of that stuff, especially the things you would learn in a jiu-jitsu class, that the people that he's talked to, you get like maybe two hours a year. Right. Well, you well here's the, so here's the, here's the and I, I've and been that might ju- not be respected, you know, uh, symptomatic. No, you're, your you're absolutely experience. right. So so I've been through two academies. So in academy, you get your basic training, you know, you're learning, you know, constitutional law, use of force, everything else, you know, local uh, uh, laws, if you're in law enforcement, federal laws, if you're in federal law enforcement, and then you have your firearms training and your um, uh, defensive tactics, they call it, I guess. And so what they'll do is that they kind of just give you like a broad stroke, like, yeah, here, mm-hmm. here's a little bit of, 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 of boxing, here's a little bit of uh, grappling. And it's just, it's just like you're, you're just nicking the surface. And I'm sure that you know, just nicking the surface of anything doesn't really give you anything at all. In fact, if anything, you know, especially when people talk about chokeholds in particular, you know, it's my personal experience, you know, I've been a martial artist for uh, 
upwards of 15 years now, like just, just 15 years hit my martial arts anniversary in August. You know, if you learn how to do a choke and you do it improperly, then yeah, choke holds are, are, are a very dangerous thing to do. If you know how to do choke holds and you do them properly and safely, and you know what to look for, and you've right. done them a billion times, there's, there are still risks involved. And, you know, obviously if somebody has a co-occurring health condition or whatever else, then it may not be the best tactic. But if you, if somebody doesn't know how to do them safely and they just saw them on like a UFC fight or something like, Oh, that'll stop this guy. You're much more likely to have a really serious issue. I don't right. think that's what was happening with George Floyd, but some of the other incidents, I think there was probably some of that. Right. And, and, and just one to add on to that, uh, you basically, if you have, just a, a bare minimum exposure it really is what you get in, in yeah. a, like a five, six month academy to a martial art. And then you, you have, you know, on like if you're a, a uniformed police officer, you have pepper spray, you have a, a baton, uh, and then you have your gun. Uh, if you don't have a background in a martial art, you know, to the depth that, that Jocko would, would prescribe, and I would too, then you automatically are just like, well, that's not going to work. I'm not going to, I can maybe give him a good punch, but that's it. Yeah. Uh, and then, then, then it's the pepper spray and the baton and then the gun. So, but if you have that, that deep, that deeper background in uh, say it's jujitsu, uh, then you have, you know, if I'm a blue belt and if I'm, I know that if I'm a blue belt and I go, if I go against any white belt that walks in the door and he's not a wrestler and he's not anything from high school or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Like, just Fal- a white belt. Matt Hersberg. Yeah. <laughs> Although he's purple uh, belt now. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you just get one of those people that had never done grappling before. You're going to mop the floor with them. And that gives you a level of confidence that, you know, you don't have to go to your pepper spray. Yep. You don't have to go to your baton or your gun. There's, you there's get a used greater, to a high intensity situation where you know you're going to be okay. And there's a, yes, there's a greater threshold to which you don't have to use those other devices. Uh, and you, you're justifiable in using them, but you have more potential for serious harm or death uh, by using those. And uh, so I, you, know, you again, I had a, uh, by the time I uh, had been a cop and then a DEA agent, I had a a strong background in judo. So I had walking in the door, I knew that I I had that in my back pocket and uh, that perhaps saved me from having to, you know, pull out a taser or, or, or or have to strike someone with a baton because I knew that I could, I could throw someone, uh, you know, and, and that would be effective. But the academies, in such broad strokes, they're getting, they're getting classes of uh, uh, officers and agents in and out so quickly that uh, they, if you don't tend to it yourself, you're not going to have that background. And I'm sorry to say, for the most part, especially <laughs> you know, in, in, uh, when I was in Metro New York with, with DEA, you don't have time. I, I literally had, I did not have the time to go to a class on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, for, if if for they had district. sectioned out some of your time, it, it, you know, all things being equal, if the agency had said, we want to make sure that our, our, our people are better prepared and they had sectioned out your time and, and allocated, you have this amount of time. We want you in a jiu-jitsu class twice a week. We want you to do this. And we're going to make sure that that's, we give you room to do that. Do you think we would have nearly the amount of, uh, unpleasant incidents that we have. That would be, for, for, from an Asian perspective, that would be a dream. <laughs> and I know some, some you know, in, in 
New York is is the high performing. You know, if you're wait, if you're sitting down doing nothing, you're wasting your time. You need to be out 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 doing stuff all the time. But in in smaller offices, they would do that. It'd be like, hey, we're, you have you have two hours to work out. You know, three times a week or whatever it is, and then they incorporate it into the day. And then you had better fit, uh, more uh, adept people. And in the places where you need it the most, the busy places. They they wouldn't even work it into the they look at you like you're you're the places where you probably need it the most is yes. the place where they le- are least likely to have it because they're saying they're saying wait a minute you guys are out here like you know rolling around on the mat you guys aren't doing a surveillance you guys out, aren't out making a drug buy you know you guys aren't you guys aren't doing your job but what they don't realize short sightedly is that it's necessary to have those tools in your toolkit to bring out onto the street whether you're a uniform police officer or if you're an agent and it un- unfortunately is is the thing that kind of falls through the cracks uh and is is looked upon as as like an extracurricular and i think it's an essential yeah do you think that the attitude towards that is changing in light of un- some very unpleasant i mean the last three or four years regardless of how prevalent it may be i know some people would debate that it certainly has gained a lot more notice it, and it maybe should that's you know I've I've been out of out of the mix going on seven years at least right now and I but I, it should be it it should be in it incorporated into the schedule of of agents and officers uh, if not required highly encouraged and time should be made you know carved out for that Cause now cause now look think about it this way if I'm if I'm an agent or an officer and I'm working you know, 10 hour days, 12 hour days, if I have to travel a little bit of time to get there, maybe even work in some overtime shifts because if, if uh, departments are shorthanded. Where are you supposed to sleep even with that? Well, that's the thing is you, you, you have sleep, spend some time with your family, and then you have that hour, hour and a half, twice a week, three times a week that you're supposed to be out, you know, at a jujitsu studio. It's just like most people would have to end up prioritizing sleep and family before that other item. So you need to incorporate yep. that as part of, as a part of the workday. Well, you know, maybe, maybe some of that will, will change. We'll, we'll see. I mean, you know, it's easier. And that's, I think you've seen it probably a lot in journalism and your kind of long view that politicians from regardless of their party affiliation have a tendency to do what is going to get them the most support so they can stack their odds for reelection rather than doing work that is substantive in terms of solving the problems they claim to be addressing in their campaign speeches. Yeah, no, that's, that's it. It's, it's, <laughs> and, and, and it kind of comes down to, the, to those level of details. It's not a problem until it's a problem. And what we had experienced, you know, this summer, uh, you know, Minnesota and elsewhere became a very big problem uh, that our country was, was forced to confront uh, and address. And I think that there are steps along the way. And, and again, you have the defund the police and everything else. And, and I know Jocko has, has, has talked on this in, in interviews and podcasts that, you know, they may actually need more money so that they can actually train them to do it the right way. Just to perhaps a more efficient allocation of the funds, not necessarily fewer funds, but a more efficient allocation of where those funds go, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's it. Yeah. So I, 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 I always, anytime I get a chance to ask somebody, uh, you know, a question about that type of thing. I mean, that's, that's really, I think, you know, part of the more expanded definition of this adventurer's mindset is, you know, willingness to examine the truth 
Sure. You know, you know, and whether it's uncomfortable, whether it's pleasant, whether it aligns with our ideals, you know, if we stick our heads in the sand and we pretend that everything is the way we think it is or think it should be, um, then, you know, you're, you're going to run into some problems somewhere along the way. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, is really important, you know, I've, I've had a, the privilege of studying quite a, you know, a variety of martial arts. And I think I've been thankful, uh, or I am thankful that most of them, uh, and certainly all the ones I've spent any appreciable time with, uh, are practical and, and do what they say that they're going to do. Mm-hmm. When you encounter somebody and you think it's going to be easy, and this goes back to the whole martial arts thing, you, you, you basically, if you live in a fantasy world and you think that this death touch Denmark thing that you saw a guy do on YouTube, you know, is going to work in a, in a jujitsu school or in a judo school, you find out real quick that doesn't work. Yep. And, and so that, ev- that willingness to look at what is real, what is accurate, even if it's uncomfortable or doesn't align, I think that that is how we cultivate or enrich an adventurer spirit. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I talk about the adventure mind ideals, um, you know, that's, again, I don't have to agree with everything, but I, I certainly should listen to somebody who has the breadth of experience rather than just listening to some pundit say that we need to defund the police or we need to do this or do that. And, you know, I'm not speaking on my particular perspective on that i I think i've pretty solidly tipped my hat that i think that defunding the police if that's what you mean is a fairly dumb idea as long as uh, you know if you really mean no police at all but if you mean reform well maybe maybe we can have a conversation right well i'll tell you what uh you know take my experience that i had in my police department and right when this was all happening people were talking about defund the police everything else Right away, you know, the things that, that cross your mind is like the union. It's, it's, it's yeah. The yeah. You union. talked a lot about that in some of your essays that you posted, I think. Yeah. And I even extended it to not just police departments, but government, government altogether. Cause I, cause I've, I've seen, you know, small government, I've seen big government and there's bloat, there's uh, bureaucracy and there's this blockade of a union that, you know, even, even now, you know, you're, you're talking with, uh, talk about teachers that, uh, you know, some, some teachers have gone back to school. Some teachers are almost outright refusing to, to be in the same uh, sphere where uh, students are because they, they have this, this concern or this articulated concern about, uh, uh, you know, COVID safety and everything else. And uh, if you take, if you're able to kind of get rid of those, the, the barriers of those unions, then all of a sudden that cop, that could hide, that could, it's not really hiding, it's just existing as a bad actor, all of a sudden you have a mechanism to be able to pluck them out. Your job isn't ironclad unless you, you know, uh, murder someone. Short of that, you know, someone could, could, you know, kind of dance through the raindrops and and make it through their career and and they've been a bad cop that whole time. Yeah. Similarly, you know, a a teacher, whether it's uh, having inappropriate contact with a student or not fulfilling their duties, you know, have the ability to, to say, you're not living up to the standards of this job. And if you don't improve, you are out and, and they don't have to worry about that right now. And, and so I think that if you're looking at something more systemic, if you're talking more institutional uh, fixes, those things 
our th- those protections for the job uh, need to change, and that's coming from someone who you know been both you know a local and you know, federal employee. I, I think that, um, and and maybe this comes from my background. I, I, I grew up in Santa Cruz, so for so for those unfamiliar with Santa Cruz, California, if you listen to the podcast, you've heard me mention it a couple times. Santa Cruz makes Berkeley look like the Bible Belt. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I mean, well, as an example, and and I, and I would not again. I'm I'm going to distinguish between DEA agents and and policy that is enforced, uh, but early, early, maybe like mid nineties, you know, right when, uh, medical cannabis was a thing in, in California. Uh, there were a couple of very public, very bad public relations issues in Santa Cruz where you had, you know, the, the, some unfortunate pictures of cancer patients being, you know, held at gunpoint, uh, on like a DEA raid or something on a, on a dispensary, whether it was, you know, cause it is illegal federally still, and, you know, Santa Cruz City Hall bit said, okay, we're going to give out free pot to anybody who wants it, whether you have a medical card or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the county sheriff and, and local police officers just kind of stood by and kept the peace and let it happen. I mean, this is, that is symptomatic of how very different Santa Cruz is from the rest of the country. Sure. Um, and so, you know, having some of that as my background, at least largely from my, my dad's side, you know, punkers and hippies and stuff influenced, I have, and, and probably still have a fairly, um, strong, uh, war on drugs bias or against a, a bias against it mm-hmm. in terms of the way it's been implemented. And I, I would say you probably would distinguish a significantly in your experience between, you know, a person who has a responsible, uh, I guess use of, or, or as far as cannabis or, and, you know, other drugs like that versus meth addicts and, uh, big heroin distributors and, and that nature. I don't know. How does that tend to get, uh, segmented out in the DEA? I mean, oddly enough, and this is more of a federal, um, guideline thing, you know, cannabis is considered a schedule one narcotic, at least officially. And methamphetamines is apparently a schedule two, which I find, kind of curious, but that aside, how is that stuff treated, at least in terms of the agency to the extent that you can talk about it? So, so for, so, and again, I can only talk about my experience and the different regions of the country have different, uh, priorities in terms of what their missions are. Uh, I was in New York city and so we weren't doing, you know, like fields of, you know, marijuana grows, uh, we right. didn't have to deal with that. So we, uh, but from my perspective, we, it, it, it's not like the FBI where, you know, you have a bank robbery, you have this, you have that, and then you have to go figure out who did it. We were able to, you know, with uh, sources and everything else, build our own cases. Uh, and so we can kind of choose what direction we want to go, where we want to go. Uh, and you would not spend a lot of time where you're not going to have a high volume. I think for, for marijuana, uh, it's you needed pounds of it. I mean, like hundreds of pounds of it in order for it to be like, uh, you know, uh, a worthwhile, uh, endeavor, uh, for prosecution. Uh, so at least it was in New York, you know, different, different places might vary, but in New York, they're not going to, they're not going to deal with a marijuana case. If someone's just, if they had like a pound of it, that's not going to be worth it for them. Uh, but 
So what you, what you then start to look at is, well, it, you know, and I've worked some marijuana cases, but you've worked a marijuana case that was tied to Italian organized crime. And sure. those, those guys that were, that those guys that were involved with that, you know, one of the families or whatever it was the, that was operating, um, they're also tied to other things. So marijuana. So it's an our, entry point into uncovering a larger situation is, is large is kind of how that was. Approached. Yeah. So, so as an agent, I, I, I didn't care so much about the drug. I cared about working good cases and going after bad, bad guys. And if my entree to them was marijuana, then that was my entree into them. And invariably it would lead to something else. And it, whether it's a harder drug or they're selling guns or they're extorting people, or they're you know doing robberies of other drug dealers. That it, it just that that gave me entryway into them. So that's that's why you know, sort of like an Al Capone tax evasion situation. Sure. Yeah. And, and again, you know, marijuana. So so my my so my personal philosophy. I, I don't. I'm I'm not a marijuana user. But sure. If, I'm not trying to get. This is not a gotcha conversation. Yeah. So no. You know. No. No. But uh, and you know, I'm, I'm maybe the one guy on earth that hasn't hasn't had to smoke marijuana. But I haven't, and it's just not part of who I am because in my own philosophy, I wanted to be more in control of uh, of my faculties and didn't want to to go off. You know, whether it's you know uh, uh, in a hallucinogen or you know some people you are more sure. depressions oriented. Yep. I just I didn't want to take myself there. So totally fun, though, and and I don't think anybody should be, just for for reference. You know, I I don't think anybody should be pressured to do it or to not do it. Right. I mean, I think it's a very personal decision. If you're an adult of age, then you know that's 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 your choice. It, yeah. Nobody should be pressured to do something they're not comfortable doing. Period. Right. And at the, and at the, and at the same time, you know, from college and you know on through through life, you know, some people choose to do that, and that's their thing, and they do that, and that's fine. I, yep. And I don't I don't view someone in a different capacity uh, because they they decide they want to smoke marijuana. So so like personally speaking. You know, it's it's not my choice. Someone else wants to do it for, yeah. for various reasons, and then you add to it that it does have a medicinal value. And yeah. if I had a family member, or say myself, had you know was in treatment for cancer, and you, you needed that so that you can you know maintain you know uh, food in your system and, and, yeah. and uh, you know uh, actively just keep your your body going, then you do what you need to do. Absolutely, and so. So I, I wouldn't subscribe personally to you know you know what you had described as you know the, the raids of the, the the cancer patients and, and and all that. I mean that was a uh, really unfortunate yeah. situation. I mean like I, I and I think I would be surprised if if that was the ideal. I mean it, it happens, but you know I, I would hope that that type of thing would only be uh, enforced when there was potentially something else attached to that distributor. Right. At now, least I would hope. I would hope. Yeah. Now, now the thing is, like you, like if you talk about different substances, you even take like uh, ecstasy, uh, club drug that was popular, sure. you sure. know, in the early two thousands, may still be, you know, prevalent yeah, out there. Yeah, it's still out there. I, I know, like people are kind of doing versions of it. Yeah, uh, it's not my not my bag personally, but I, it's around. So I had a a great deal of experience with that uh, as as an agent and in New York. And what I came to see, you know, from the inside of it, you know, the mm-hmm. outside, you, you have someone, you know, it's, it, it, there's a nightclub in New York City and someone uh, wants to, you know, alter their journey uh, and ecstasy. Of course, everyone gets all, you know, amorous and lovey-dovey and, and, and everything's great. And that's why they, they take this drug. Um, 
but the people that were selling it as glamorous as they may be, or the, just the, the good time guy, or whatever it is, they, they, they don't even know what substance is in there. Um, they're, they're buying it, you know, so I was working Russian organized crime and you're dealing with, with Russians who are buying from someone up in Washington Heights who may have got it from overseas and, and, Invariably, you know, at that time, it may. By the have time you get to the actual consumer of the drug, you don't know if it's cunt with fentanyl or, or whatever else that might be really damaging to the person that's well, taking it. Yes, and and put it this way: so so you'd have these guys and hear their conversations, and uh, they'd say, "Well, I like the the pink stars, but the the, the blue dolphins tasted a little too metallic." And these these are the these are the sellers that are that are you know using it themselves, and I'm like it probably tastes metallic because it probably has metal in it. <laughs> and it's just like, they have no idea. And at the time, you know, did this originate from some basement in Israel? Who knows? I mean, or, or Amsterdam, sure. you have no idea. But someone is making it with perhaps whatever they have on hand or they, they mix and match you know, certain substances because of the consistency and flavor and they're still trying to make a profit on this based on what they can, can gather from materials. And then they send it off. So it's just by the time it then gets to the club, you really have like there's some girl, some 20 year old college girl that's that's taking this because she wants to you know alter her experience, and she does not realize the journey that these the, that this drug took to get to her and what's inside it and what it could or could not be doing to her immediately or down the road. And, and it to those guys selling those drugs didn't matter to them. And that's, that's one of the takeaways that I had was that you had someone that really had an irreverence for, for what they were dispensing and what that was going to do to someone other than it, it gave them, you know, 10 bucks a pill, whatever it was, whatever they ultimately sold it right. for. And they're making their profit margin on, on volume and everything else. And that's all that it came down to for them is that this is how they're making their money. And they're not thinking about the fact that they're giving some, uh, some substance that could could kill someone or it could, you know, do, you know, send them off, you know, in a, in a very dark place or, or, or whatever. Um, and that's, and that's what's out there. And then, so, so he, here's me, you know, the guy just trying to do good. This was a worth, this was a worthy case. It was okay. sexy. It had, it dealt with Russians and everything else, but it was, it was, it was, it was people that were selling pills to innocents that, they had no idea where this was literally coming from and, 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 and the origins of it and uh, the, the bodily magnitude that this thing could or could not have uh, if it's the wrong you know, set of substances that they happen to take that night. There's been a, a, a movement, at least in, in part, and I've, I've, I know that it happens at festivals in particular. I don't, I don't know about Burning Man. I've never been. But festivals like that, and I think the uh, there's a big festival out in uh, I think England. I think it's the I don't know if it's the Download Festival. There's a couple out there where they have no questions asked uh, tents where people can go have the drugs tested. <laughs> now, some they're, they're kind of people of two minds in that, and some people say, well, you know, drugs are are unhealthy. You shouldn't do it, and they're illegal. So that if they have them, then that shouldn't be. We shouldn't encourage people to use drugs. There are those people who say, well, they're going to do them. Let's, let's at least test them so that people aren't uh, taking something that they think is something else. Um, 
Do you have any particular take on that? I don't have too much of, I wasn't aware of, of, of that kind of, of setup. You know, to me, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I mean, guess, you can decide not to answer. I, no, I'm, totally I, I mean, I'm not going to put you to feet to the fire on that. No, no, no I, I, I guess it's, it's good that people have an understanding of what they're putting into their bodies, you know, by, by having it like tested. They're like, okay, this has actual cocaine in it and it's not like whatever. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not an advocate of putting substances into your body any more than you need to. Uh, even, even medicine, I try not to, to take anything more sure. than I need to. And when I, when I think of, you know, a drug, you're, you're getting a heightened experience, whether it's a depressant or it's, uh, something like cocaine that's, that's, that, that's revving you up. And, but what that's doing is it's, it's putting, you know, if, if your body is an engine, your, your brain's an engine, it's, it's really putting your body into overdrive when it, for a longer period of time than it really was designed to. Sure. And so what you're going to do is you're going to burn out whatever you know, your body is going to be hard. It's going to be your brain is going to be something else. And so that's one of the, the reasons why I'm uh, less of an advocate, even if you know what it is, you know, it's like, you don't want to be an advocate of, of, of using recreational drugs to that level because it can have those ramifications. You know, you, you don't know when that, that fatal dose is around the corner. Sure. You, you build and, up a tolerance to heroin or otherwise, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're it. That, that's it. You've reached your limit. Well, and, and, and I, I think that, you know, regardless, I, I think that, you know, people need to be aware what they're, what they're putting in the body and yeah. some things, you know, can't come back from quite so easily. Yep. Uh, you know, so I, I think it's certainly not something you want to just, Oh, yo, it's all good. And then never, never think about, right. um, do you, uh, do you have any cases that, I mean, that shoot that Russian mafia, that's, that's pretty sexy. Like you're saying, you know, that, um, that's the, the whole, I think that's the thing I'm, I'm kind of reflecting as you're, you're on what you said. I think by and large, a lot of law enforcement folks, they want to do good, you know, and they have to operate with the constraints of what they've been given. Um, and you know, I mean, again, you're, you're pretty strongly minded of making sure that the innocent people aren't uh, taken advantage of. And I, sure. and I think that that's, I mean, that's huge. I, I've seen that um, in other conversations we've had about other issues. Um, was there ever a, is there a particular anecdote that you can share maybe um, either from, you know, a uniform or from DEA where you felt especially good about uh, something you did or were able to work on or, or kind of a, you know, and it doesn't have to be a single one, but if there's something that you think back where you feel you felt good that you wore a badge or, or, or good that you uh, were doing the work you were doing? Well, I'll tell you, um, it was one of the last cases that I worked as an active What's agent in DEA. And it actually involved uh, individuals that were in the Dominican Republic uh, okay. pretending to be DEA agents. Oh, and wow. what they did was, you know, there was the, there was the time when um, uh, you could buy pills online, you know, online, you know, whatever it is. It's, sure. whether it's fentanyl, whether it's uh, Xanax, you know, whatever it is. There are a lot of people that are trying to get like Cialis and stuff and whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, whatever it is. Now, invariably, that stuff is is counterfeit or it's it's made in countries where it's not 
uh, controlled like India. Right. You might end up taking something that you think is just Viagra, but it's Viagra that's cooked in a, in a, the same vat that had speed in it. And now you're not only taking Viagra, you're also taking methamphetamine and right. Or, or, or it could have been made, made by within that country, but not to the same standard. So you think that you're taking a certain dose and it has an off, uh, you know, uh, and you wonder why about, you're having a heart attack. You're having a heart attack because you took double of what you thought you were taking. Right. So, so in any case, so there was, there, there was that time, uh, where it was very prevalent and it was a little bit of kind of a gray area as to whether or not it was legal or illegal to buy pills online. Turns out it's not quite as legal. And, um, but what happened is, so you had people that would be buying these and then after a period of time, the drug dealers either didn't want to risk getting caught sending the drugs out or they didn't have the drugs anymore. Uh, then came the, the, the industry of then selling those lists of all those people that had bought drugs in the past. And so they had, they had the person's name, they had the person's uh, email address, they had their actual address, or whatever address they had been receiving the drugs at, uh, what drugs they had bought, how often they had bought it, you know, all these things. And, and it, then came the industry of selling these lists of customers, of, of illicit pill customers, regular people across the United States. And so what people would do and, and come to find out that uh, there was a, a, an enclave of, of, of people in uh, happened to be the Dominican Republic who would buy these lists. And then they basically set up like call centers where they would then as their business, they would, they would, they would operate at nine to five. They would, they would make these calls to these individuals and they would have the pitch of, you know, this is so-and-so special agent, so-and-so from the drug enforcement administration. They would go on and utilize Say it was a special agent in charge of the New York office, whoever it was, uh, John Smith. And because they, they'd go onto the website and see John Smith, special agent in charge. So they would use his name so that if someone then looked him up, they'd be like, oh my God, it's John Smith. He's, he's, and he called me. Um, not realizing that a special agent in charge is not actually actively working cases. Uh, but you'd have the name <laughs> and they would say, uh, you have, we, we, we understood you bought dr- this drug on this date. And it was, you know, sent to your address and uh, you can either uh, pay a fine or you will be subject to arrest. <laughs> and, uh, and people will pay all kinds of fines to get out of. So there, there, was, there, was, there, there was those individuals and you had some people that were, you know, just housewives that were strung out. You had someone that was a professional, that like they were a doctor or a lawyer. And some of those sure. people. And, and they can't afford to have their entire career ruined. They're cornered. And, and yeah. when they feel that they're cornered, so that they, they pay. And once they pay, now they have a live one. And then they, they, they end up up in the ante. Well, you know, they put the squeeze on even more and more. And then, then they say, yeah. well, listen, I, I, unfortunately, you know, this thing was referred already to, you know, so-and-so. You need to talk to this other agent who, and then all of a sudden they, they have you. And there had been documentation by the time wow. this, this case had rolled around where, where uh, an individual had committed suicide because they felt so cornered. It was, uh, I forget what the, you know, the, the, the person's and, profession And the was. reality is they weren't talking to real agents at all. They weren't talking to real agents at all. They, they had emptied their, their, their life savings, hundreds of thousands of dollars, wow. tens of thousands of dollars after that, that first you know, payoff. And, and then they ultimately commit suicide because they feel like they, they have nowhere to go. They're, they're ruined. And uh, at some point, DEA said enough. <laughs> that no, no, People are not going to pretend to be us. And, uh, they they're are like, not, you're not going to get like, get away with pretending to be us. And we're going to make sure that you, you can't do that anymore. Right. So I, yeah. I, I, 
the, I had worked on a case that had dealt with these, these, these pills that were being sold online and, and, you know, to whatever regional acclaim that that had gotten, I was, you know, I had a successful conclusion to a case that happened to be in New York. And because of that proximity, New York had a very strong, um, uh, prosecution unit, uh, out of, uh, uh Southern districts in New York. And, uh, they, their batting average is like, you know, almost a thousand. They, they, they win nearly every case. So they're like, all right, well, this is the, the right guy, the right time. And so I was, I was tasked with, um, working this case of, uh, uh, finding these individuals that were conducting these, um, uh, impersonations, uh, and yeah, extortion situation. Yeah. And the fact that they were overseas, in the Dominican Republic, uh, they felt they had a certain amount of anonymity and um, they were out of reach. But uh, we were able to successfully wiretap uh, the, they used uh, uh, magic jack phones, you know, the, the, yep. the VoIP uh, magic yep. jacks. And because that was based, uh, while they were in the Dominican Republic, they were, that company's based out of the United States, we had reach to wiretap them. You had jurisdiction because they were using an American service. Well, we, we, we were able to connect. Yes, we were able, to, we were able to, to do the wiretap because they were using a service that connected to the United States. And, of course, their jurisdiction because they were uh, victimizing Americans. Right. Um, and their statutes, you know, irrespective of where someone is, if you're, if you're doing something that causes harm to an American, you can have that reach to get someone in a foreign country. It's how, you know, DEA got the... Victor Boot, uh, arms trafficker. He, I guess he was, he was trafficking arms through, uh, you know, Colombia and South America. And, you know, uh, he was ultimately, I think, uh, arrested in, um, Indonesia, Thailand or something like that. But again, never set foot in the United States, but we were able to get him. So it's that kind of reach that, that we have. And in this case, uh, we were, we, we were able to get it down to, you know, various techniques, methods, everything else. Uh, we were able to verify the voice with the real person. And uh, we, what was different for us this time, and this is what you're know, getting to your original question, something, sure. a, a satisfying case, whatever it is, we never deal with victims. We're always dealing with someone that gets, gets um, arrested trying to sell drugs and then they become an informant. Uh, but in this case, you have a DEA agent or an agency that is is now dealing with broad scale victims, people that you know maybe they they bought some pills online or whatever it is. It wasn't be, it would, may not have even risen to the level that we would look at them in any case. Like you wouldn't even care but for the fact that they're just, a, a link right, to the larger piece, right? And 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 the thing was so so now we're having we're hearing conversations. We're having direct, I'm, I'm then following up, having direct conversations with these individuals. And, and you then become even more invested because you're dealing with the people that have had the loss. They, they've been victimized. They've been uh, bullied by these phone calls. They've emptied their bank accounts. They've done all this and that. And so then it becomes very personal. And now you're just driven. You're not just catching the bad guy. You're catching the bad guy who took away from these people. And sometimes right. they've ruined these people, hundreds of thousands of dollars for some of them. And so we methodically built our case and then it was, you know, you know we indicted them. I, I, I successfully in, indicted, you know, 20 some odd of them. And then it was uh, shortly after I had then left service that the arrest warrants were approved overseas and we got them. We, we went and, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
went and arrested these individuals and you know to some acclaim it's in a reuters article somewhere you know dea impersonators dominican republic it's on it's in reuters and that's it that was me <laughs> so if you really want to go do the research folks you, you can go find out more i guess but, but i mean and, and the thing is that that's something that i think even most you know kind of real extreme drug legalization advocates would suggest is that you know when you have people there are already there's already a built built-in shame when you have an addiction to something you know, I, I, I have been fortunate enough not to really struggle with any significant addiction. I, I, a lot of people have, and it's really easy to do. I got talking to somebody recently who, you know, they're a uh, competitive snowboarder and they got hooked on opioid pain pills because they genuinely needed them mm-hmm. because of their injuries. And then they got stuck on them right. and it took them a long time to get off of them. And, you know, there's already a built in shame and self-loathing and everything else to then have be taken advantage of on top of trying to manage or hopefully break free of your addiction. You know, that's, I think that's something that most reasonable people, even if they have issues with the DEA on a larger scale, or even the idea of the war on drugs, I think most people could get behind something uh, like that, where you're, you're helping to save people from being in further uh, damage. Oh yeah. And, and, and bear in mind for, especially when you're talking about DEA, you're talking about not typically speaking. You're not. You're not talking about the user. You're not talking about someone who's yep. who, who's addicted. You're you're talking about someone who's 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 uh, selling it and supplying it. And what I've seen, and you can you can again, this became more prevalent with the uh, Italian organized crime that I was involved in investigating. They these individuals, whatever they were doing, and, and they would do these people would do whatever they had within their capacity in order to make money. And if it's, if it's, if it's robbery, if it's uh, trying to uh, do fraudulent uh, refinancing of mortgages, you know, some of them, if it's a combination of that with some drugs, they would do it and they would justify it at the end of the day because they're doing it for their family, for, for their own family, for their girlfriend, for their, for their children, for their wife, whatever it is, they're doing it as their way of supporting their own individual family. And when you have that sort of family component of it, I mean, you know, I have limits, but there are things that I think all of us lengths we would be willing to go, if not illegal, but on, you know, personal distress that we would be willing to put ourselves through for the sake of our family that we would not do for pretty much anybody else. Like there are things that I'll, I'll do for, for Andrea, my wife, that I will never do for anybody. I thankfully she's not put me in a position where I have to do that, uh, but I'm still willing to to do a lot more than than I would, and that's you know I guess that's why we have that protection of not being able to, you know, be incriminated by your spouse and all that kind of fun stuff. Right, but the the, the difference is, and some of these people, and some some of them were were, were well educated. Some of them may not have had a formal education, maybe beyond high school, but they yep. were all many of them were smart. They, and, and if, of course and, they if were. They had, if they had directed, if they had channeled that energy, that effort, whatever that, that business acumen, whatever it is into a, like a, uh, like a straight job, they would actually be successful. Uh, but they choose to do this. And, and I've seen it in some, in some ways that they'll do it because they, they like, it's not like the light, it's not like this rock star lifestyle where they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm the drug dealer. It's the, 
you know, wake up at, and I, I've, I've listened to enough of their, their calls to, to, to know what they're talking about. You know, this is, this is the, the person that, that wakes up at, at 10 a.m. At their, at their girlfriend's house. They, uh, you know, screw the girlfriend. Then they go off and go to the gym. And then they uh, meet up with someone and grab a bite. And then they go off and sell some drugs in a parking lot for five minutes. And then, boom, then they're done. And then they're uh, back to, you know, you know where their, their kids are. And it's, it's this kind of like vaguely scheduled life where they're just kind of just doing what they want to do, which is you know, go to the gym, you know, mess around with girlfriends, go see, you know, their, their, their wife or their kids. And then do do a, a drug deal that should just take like thirty seconds or a minute, and then th- then that that keeps them going until the next week or the next day or whatever it is, and that's how they like to live. And sometimes they have a lot of money; they can buy a good car. Sometimes they don't, and most of the time they're just kind of scratching by, living a little bit beyond their means. So that keeps them in the mix, and um, but they're doing it with not understanding or not caring about the harm that what they're selling is doing down the line, whether it's, it's, it's ruining someone's career or it's keeping someone from, from getting out of the gate in terms of their, uh, their own potential. Or in some cases, you know, you get a, a hot shot of, you know, cocaine or something like that and you kill somebody. Uh, they don't care. They just don't, they don't care. Uh, because again, they'll justify their own lifestyle and, and sustaining their girlfriend, their kids, their family. Sure. And that's, I mean, and, and I think that, you know, desperation breeds humans to do some pretty sketchy stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and what do you think would be a good, would be a solution? I mean, obviously there's the enforcement side of things. Um, but what do you think is a good solution for kind of removing that desperation that people have? Well, again, you, I, I think the desperation may come down to, so here, here's the thing. So, and I'm, I'm looking at it more. Through I understand the lens of, you're not a policymaker. That's fine. No, no, no. You but, know. but I'm trying to look at it through the lens of if, if you're like in the industry of, of selling drugs. There, there isn't that much. The, the urgency. They, they all seem to have had options that they chose this. Uh, they, they, and I, I don't want to say that's an easier path because you know certainly you're, you're they're putting themselves in arduous situations themselves, sure. subject to you know arrest. But it was a, a, a path that held some allure on some level. What, what would what would be able to motivate somebody to? I mean, obviously there are some people that are going to always make a choice, or some people are going to find that they're down on their luck and they don't feel like they whether they have options. Sometimes people feel like they don't have options; they'll just reach for the first thing. I, I if I had to to root it back, I would say it was probably it would probably be the company that they keep. Uh, if, if someone is surrounded by uh, other people, their friends that were into that lifestyle or, uh, you know, didn't you kind of like walk away from it, then it, it became an okay thing to do. And again, I'm thinking about those, you know, the knock around kids in Brooklyn and things like that. And, yeah. um, you know, I, and then you also aware of some people that they started out, they were just selling drugs in college just to make a little pocket money and be the popular guy that the girls went to. And then all of a sudden they like, well, I can make this into a big business. Um, and then I think that that slowly the, their morals kind of like erode uh, in terms of, you know, what they, what they want to do or what they're willing to do. Um, so again, the desperation that I see was more of when I was a, a road cop and you're seeing, you know, I, I still remember, you know, one guy we locked up, uh, he was, you know, white kid, you know, tennis shirt, 
Um, and he, here he was a heroin addict and it just, it just didn't gel. You know, this is, this is like your, your, you know, your white bread, you know, suburbanite full on, you know, heroin addict. And it was, you know, the getting the, you know, hooked on the pills that he could no longer afford. It ran out of yep. and then couldn't afford. And then after he was stealing and then he couldn't steal anymore from, from relatives, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden it, heroin was the only, the next best thing that he could afford. Uh, and, and that's where you see the desperation, uh, sure. is, is that they're, they're stuck in this cycle. So then you have someone that's addicted, that's just trying to feed it. Then all and of a sudden they start selling in order to cover their, exactly. Then their all costs. of a sudden you're like, well, if I just buy two and then I sell one to someone else, now I got some money and then I can buy more stuff. And it, it, it that's, that's where the desperation is. The, the, the big players that I've seen, it, it didn't seem to, they may have gotten into a cycle that they found that they maybe couldn't have easily taken themselves out of. But uh, I didn't see desperation as 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 the motivation. It's 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 on the the. Gotcha. It's really the, the, side. when you talk. By the time you get up to the cartels, it's it's they're kind of entrenched into a, a way of it. Oh, it's a business. It's yeah. It's 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 a business in a lot of ways. And and uh, again, if they if they just aim that in the right direction, they could be highly successful in in legitimate business. Uh, but they they choose this avenue. Um, and that's, that's, that's the life that they end up, you know, falling into. Pretty illuminating, I think for, for some of us, um, certainly for me, what, I mean, you've written about your experiences obviously in law enforcement and, and some of this, yep. you've also written about a bunch of other stuff too. I, I actually really enjoy your writing by the way, just, and Thank I'm not you. saying that just cause we're friends. I think you're genuinely a really good writer. Sure. Thank you. Um, what kind of stuff are you working on right now? I know you had been kind of working on some book things here and there, and you have some essays that are uh, maybe so, compiled and whatnot. Or so, yeah, I'm working on a few things. So, so, the, so a couple of the recent things um, invariably has to do with uh, the school closures. Uh, you know, out here sure. in, in San Diego, uh, I have I have one daughter in middle school, and school's not open, and it's all been remote, and it's been personally devastating for her in the sense of you can see the loss of, of what she's not doing or what she's not achieving, what she's sure. not experiencing. And sure. so I've written on that. I'm uh, something of an introspective writer. And so I, I often take, I can all, I write from that perspective in, in a, in an introspective way that, that explores, you know, that, so I, I've you, you seem that. to write from your own personal experiences, you know, at least there's usually in, in all of the things that I've read that you've written, even if you're speaking to a larger issue, you're usually drawing upon from your own experience somewhere in there, at least a little. Oh yeah. And, and I, so what I try to do is what you may find often in any of my essays that I very rarely use any names. And sometimes yeah. that's a protection because you don't want to get, you know, your ass. Of course. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine, but, especially with some of the subject matter we were just going over, you want to keep those vague, at least a but, few things. But in, but in another way, it's, it becomes a literary tool because it generalizes it just enough so that someone else could lay over their own experience because they're not right. trying to get over the names. It's more but, universal of a, of a reach and it's easier for people to connect with what you're talking about. Right. And, and one of my recent, um, essays that I wrote uh, was entitled uh, Ingratitude. And, and what that was, you know, because there's some, some kids that, you know, my, my daughter connects with, you know, a little pot of, of, of kids. And I had sure. noticed that there seemed to be this, this ingratitude that these kids had. 
mm. about, you know, like it's just like leaving, you know, their wrappers around and just like kicking their feet up on the couch. And it's just, it's, it's, it's in some ways like infuriating, like Jesus Christ, don't you know what I'm trying to do for you guys? And, but then it really occurred to me again, trying to take their perspective that these kids expect shit to be done. School, internet, learning, you know, lights on in the house, you know, get, give me the mm. basics, give me the framework, give me the classroom, and, and I'll do the thing of being the kid. And, and there's, there's a certain expectation of, of things being done by the adults. So I, I get it. I literally, I, I get it that these kids expect someone's going to clean it. Someone's going to, there's a janitor that's going to clean it up. And this case happens to be me when they're over my house. I heard somebody say, I don't know if this is an exaggeration or if this is fairly accurate, that many schools in, say, Japan and some, some other Asian countries, but specifically Japan was the one that was referenced, there are no janitors. Huh. That, that essentially the students are expected to clean. And yeah. that if you don't, you know, that that's just part of your school life. Um, yeah. And, and, but in this case, you know, you have, you have kids that, that expect there to be something. And, and again, you know, if you, if you just take a, a, you know, 30,000 foot view, expect that there's going to be school, um, you know, just, yeah, a little, little detail like school. Uh, and when it's not there, you know, it's, it, it really occurs to me that, that, you know, it's on us as, as, you know, community, as parents to provide that to them. So that's, that's why I, I took that view as to, you know, you know, these, these kids are, are going through something significant and they're, they're doing without, and that it isn't like just, I'm having fun. I didn't get to play, you know, on the football game or whatever it is. It's they're missing out on key elements of their lives right now. Uh, adolescents trying to figure out themselves, trying to build their identities, trying to craft who it is that they are. And, and, and all of that has just been stifled. So th there's a bigger picture that's being missed. Um, so that's why, you know, I, I, I kind of juxtaposed these kids with their, their feet up on the couch versus, you know, kids that should be, have an expectation of the basics and at a particular, um, you know, time in their lives when, when it's very pivotal. So, uh, so, anyway, so that, that was, that was one of my, uh, essays, uh, a larger project that I've been working on, um, actually has to do with my family. And um, I may or may not have, have gotten into any of those details with you, uh, but uh, the, the short story, I guess, is that um, I grew up in the same hometown that my father did in uh, southeastern Connecticut and uh, East Lyme, home of the Lyme tick. Yay. And, yep. uh, <laughs> and uh, I, we grew up in a, uh, a rural part of town. And I hated living there. Uh, it was this, you know, you know, historically speaking, it was like the last shards of the family farmland and everything else. And here we are, you know, half of it was, was kind of like, uh, uh, you know, floodland. I would, you know, every time that there was a heavy rainstorm, the, the lower lot would flood. The other part of it was, was, was craggly, you know, um, uh, ridge rock, whatever it is. And, and here we are lived in the middle of the woods, no kids around, anything else. And it wasn't until after my dad had died that I started to get a lot of the details about the family. And I uh, did read something you had posted about that. I don't know if, if you and I had ever really gotten into the specifics, but yeah. I'll, I'll let you continue. Yeah. And that, that was, a, that was an, an essay that I had written uh, called Chesterfield Road, where I grew up. 
and yep. uh, come to have found out that uh, my father's mother was murdered by uh, my my father's father, and you know, so it was a murder and a suicide. You know, when you know the farm family, you know, I think uh, my dad was was sixteen at the time, and uh, there were some older kids, some younger kids, and and invariably this this led to a, a, a spiraling out of control of of the entire family. And uh, I learned about it in 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 little bits and pieces. And, and by the time that I really started to dig into it, I was a journalist, so I started to put those those journalism tools to work, and I actually yep. found the article from nineteen sixty one that was the front page, you know, the local newspaper at the time that, that there I was, you know, there, there, there's wow. my family, uh, there's the murder and suicide that, right, that, right there. <laughs> that must've been a little bit of a, a, a mind bender for you when you kind of realized what actually had taken place. It was. And, and not only that, so, so this, this all occurred, what essentially was like four driveways from where I grew up. And I hadn't realized, I knew that the family farm was there, but I had no conception that, Wow. occurred so close and that specifically speaking after you know the proverbial you know should hit the fan that um uh, when the family fractured that my that was one of those things that led my father into police work uh the unenviable job and the you know the the uh, villainous job of, of being a cop this was the reason why my dad went into law enforcement and i grew up knowing him only as a state trooper um, and, wow. but this was, this was the why, cause he was trying to right the wrongs and more so he was trying to change the optics of the family name. So we grew up in a small town. We were in the North right. end, okay. the, the South end was, uh, you know, was, was along the shoreline and here we were the, you know, in the farm section and we were essentially the dirtbag farm kids. That was our family. That was that was the family. They're, 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 basically, to kind of reestablish a new legacy of of good work, of, yes. of good living. Yes, and, yeah. and and just just and and so that so so then it's finding out you know the reason I lived in this you know this this backwoods you know lot uh, you know two miles from you know really anything uh, was because this was my dad trying to restore the family name, not trying to let that murderous legacy stand so he, he 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 got whatever remaining shards of the land were left uh and and lived on it raised us there it was a cop so everyone then knew him in town over time as as not the the dirt bag but the cop and um and that's it, that has been a journey of of learning about my father in his death uh and then further it was then Finally, having to publish that story, uh, not necessarily with the, the full wishes of, of my family. There, there are some people uh, in my family, aunts and uncles, that still lived in the area in town that were seemed petrified that I had written it. Uh, some were relieved. Were, and, some were probably upset, I, I suspect. Or? Uh, one, one of my uncles... So one of my uncles uh, was just like, all right, well, the story's out. <laughs> it was just like, okay, this is, it's finally, you know, it's, it's something that no one talked about. Everyone knew the story. I didn't know it, but all of, the, all of their generation did. No one right. talked about it. They, they had been pit into this uh, situation where they invariably, you know, either couldn't rely on each other or had to 
I don't want to say levels of betrayal, but you you had basically someone from from nine years old all the way up to twenty five years old, and you know there was like I think six or seven siblings altogether, left basically scattered, um, and there was a lot of uh, animosity that had persisted without explanation all my life, and and so this sure. was finally a verbalization of that, and it also then demonstrated you know to them to the community and everyone else that that here we are we've come full circle and uh we've we've made made right on on all of this and one of my uncles initially didn't he he uh, it was published in a you know as an anthology uh, a book anthology and he didn't want the book uh but then later you know, my cousins had got it. And in my generation that had all these questions unanswered as well. Right. So the then, generation removed who was basically kept in the dark all these years and, you know, perhaps understandably. So whatever it's now they're, they're particularly interested to understand why things are so odd. Right. Why, why our parents all acted the way that they did, why there would be uh, you know, an eruption at uh, Christmas dinner uh, and everyone would have to leave, you know, that, that kind of thing. And it, it was like, why do these people, you know, get along so tenuously and uh, why at some point do we not have Christmas together at all uh, as, as this family? And uh, it, so, so the, the generation removed received the answers that they were not getting. Uh, and then right. finally, I, it was, it was, I then, there was one, my aunt uh, that was the youngest. She was nine at the time that this and she was, happened. she was a, uh, one of your father's sisters. Yes, and she she got okay. the brunt of it. So she was, you know, she was she was cast into um, foster care, and she was, you know, various levels of uh, abuse that she endured there, and you know, down the line, you know, she she was she she was the, the the most vulnerable, and she was the most maligned out of all of them, and I was most concerned with how she would have uh, received this. I was aware that she, as a part of her uh, graduation from high school, had written something that was she was able to speak during the graduation. That that uh, uh, as a part of the uh, uh, graduation ceremony, that everyone you know, it was well received, and she kind of put it out there. So I had an understanding that she was was willing to do this uh, and, and talk about it, but I didn't know how much. And she she was very accepting of of it being out and then it finally this the story now being out led to some of my family members including her and, and other members that she had been disenfranchised from with actually then having a conversation about all this and i think they made more peace with uh some of the differences that they had uh because i was able to, to bring everything to light um so anyway so that's that's the story that i had worked on and i'm actually since that time the floodgates have opened with even more information that then you realize that my dad's father, I still refuse to call him my grandfather, Understood. Uh, the murderous one. He was, so we're, you know, we're Ukrainian, Ukrainian descent, uh, that back in those times, you're talking late thirties, early forties in New York city where they originated from before they came to Connecticut. He was actually part of a crew of uh russian organized crime <laughs> ironically the same <laughs> that, that's fascinating that you the, the probably that this might even be a connection with some of the people that you helped to take down connected loosely to wow. so, so if you if you then look at it full circle my my dad's father who ended up collapsing the entire family with his his murderous ways and and there are stories that i've heard and i, I was able to validate things to a certain extent 
that back in the 30s and 40s, he was a part of a, a ruthless group that would kidnap people, hold them for ransom, and if the ransom was paid, they let them go. And if they didn't, uh, they would kill them and burn the bodies. And this is what they did. This is, this was, this is part of my family's lineage. Wow. And then when, when things got, when some people were arrested, um, Demetrius Gula, I guess, is, is a famously someone that in the 30s or, or late 30s or early 40s was arrested. Then it was time for them to leave New York. And that's when they, they finally all came to, came to Connecticut. And uh, <laughs> uh, then I would then go on eventually to investigate Russian organized crime in New York. So that's, that's, there's, there's the full circle. So that, that's a part of things that I did not know. I mean, I, I knew, I, I knew about the, um, the, the initial basis cause I read the piece that you're talking about. Uh, and then, well, yeah, that's just that I don't really have a response to that. I, I'm, I'm finding <laughs> you and at least one other guest that I've had on recently. I, I struggle sometimes with the the information of the stories told of i just want to sit here and soak it in and realize that wouldn't be fascinating for anybody to listen to <laughs> so they kind of <laughs> like so what do you mean i downloaded this file 20 minutes 20 minutes of it is no talking <laughs> but, but in essence uh you know so that's 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 the next, you know, thing that I'll be working on. And in, in are you going to uh, make that into a full book? I mean, this sounds like I, there's a book level amount of material. There, there is. And it's, it's basically taking the essay that I had worked on, which, you know, was long and it's, I guess it's own right, 5,000 words, whatever it was. But then that becomes like the, the entry point to talk about this much bigger, broader thing. Uh, as I've gotten to know, um, you know, more about my family. And then, you know, now, you know, you know, you know, I reflect on, you know, my, my seventh grade daughter is, is reading the outsiders. And of course I've, I've read it myself. And then I've sure watched the movie and, you know, the, uh, the greasers, my father, again, the, the guy who would then become the state trooper redeeming his family name, he would have been, well, he was a greaser. He was that, that's what he was. He was, he was one of yeah. the dirt bags in town, the, the cast asides, the, the thugs, whatever it was, you know, the, the, you know, the knock around kids and you could go one of several directions and, you know, whatever his wherewithal was, he decided, and he could have Jerry justifiably, you know, his, 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 his dad murdered his mom and it sent the, the, the family off, you know, you know, in a million directions. And you could have said, you know, he could have been an alcoholic. He could have been a thug. He could have done anything and, they, and he would have paid for it, but they would have explained it by this. This is why and I understand why he did it. And he went the opposite mm. way. So, and again, all these things that I, he, he, he had kept me from not, you know, you get little, little tidbits here and there. Uh, and, and he was, was so intent within one generation uh, from myself and my brother to, to, to get us so far away from that. And he didn't have the money. And it's like, Oh, we're going to go off to a different place. You're going to, you know, have a, he he went out of his way though, to create a life for the two of you. That was like starkly different than the life that he grew up with and experienced. Yes. Uh, Stable, uh, kind of like, you know, very kind of, you know, standardized living, you know, he's, you know, Famously, he got into a, uh, you know, he was a kid, he got into a rock fight with his <laughs> rock fight with his brothers and sisters in the farm, and he got one good one in the head. And uh, then it became the contemplation that, uh, all right, well, if their dad sees, sees you know, my, my 
sees Don, if they see Don with a black eye from a rock fight, then everyone's going to get beat. So they hit him in the barn for, you know, for like a week and no one knew he was, they didn't, they didn't miss him. They didn't know that he wasn't there. Um, oh, wow. So, so, so the, not, not like he, oh, you got, just got a black, they just assume everybody's that, wow. They have no, they had no concept of where these kids were. Now, we, what was he 10, 12 years old at the time? Whoa. Who knows? And here he is, you know, nursing a, a black eye. Uh, in a barn, and, and he did they at least missed. like bring him food and water oh, yeah. and stuff? Or did but, but the mom, the dad, you know, they, they, they just there was no like they had no no track of, of, of who's where, and, and if he's not there, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just that's that's the life that he lived. I, I, I can't even imagine. Like like I'm I'm like I I've been through. Uh, I'm, I I I've talked about it before. I'm an adult survivor of child abuse, but nothing like that. That's that's some. That's some nutty shit. Yeah. Like no, no, yeah. no disrespect to your family. I just, no, wow. And again, you know, these are the things that I've learned. And again, it was just the other side of, you know, the hill. This is, this is where they, this is where it all happens. Uh, and, uh, but so my dad was intent on riding the ship, not like in this progressive way. Well, he was less abusive. He was less this and less that. And he was just like, and sure. he, he became very insular. I, I felt like I didn't know him because he was keeping so much mm. to himself. But, perhaps I mean I'm, this is interesting conjecture, but you know he probably did that to keep you from whatever vestiges of you know personal struggles he had. I don't I mean I don't know. I don't want to make assumption no, about your dad. No, but. no, you're 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 right. In a lot of, in a lot of ways, he a lot of things he wouldn't talk about, and then the way that he dealt with it as a child. Again, you're dealing with with abuse, physical abuse, sure. uh, all his life. Uh, that he was able to just numb himself out. And, and, and just take it. And so that's the way he persisted as, as, as an adult. And, and so in a lot of ways, he just was able to kind of shut things out, to shut people out. And so, so I accept that as what I was able to get from him. I was able to get little pieces of him. Uh, and that was the most that he could give. And uh, so that's... Wow. Uh, and again, so now you're, now you're t- talking storytelling wise you're talking about that journey in in me getting to know my father but i think everyone may have you know a relationship that they may be able to you know relate to in, in that sense of, of a, of a sure. disconnect or a reason why that they're they're not able to to uh connect more intimately um and and those are the kinds of uh themes that you know i, I try to look towards when i'm when i'm trying to well, i, you I know, think you can open up a a, a real you know, there's a huge potential for a catharsis for people, you know, and, that, and I'll, and I'll say, you know, quite honestly, that, that the essay where the, the initial part of that, that was difficult to read, um, you know, understandably so. Uh, but I, I, it, it sort of, I don't remember how I responded at the time, but it, it sort of made me start thinking about things and about, I, I, I do remember that it made me think about, being more intentional about crafting the life that, uh, that I wanted to have for the people that I influenced, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I think that, you know, there's the, if you write like that, and, and obviously I've read other things you've read, you've written, there's the potential to, to, to really speak to something that I think has been seriously lacking. People want you thinking about the, uh, the, the girls and I want to be respectful of your time. We can take a look in a minute, but, mm-hmm. um, I think that the 
we're all, especially this year in particular, <laughs> we're just trying to hang on. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're, many of us are kind of going through the, the emotions and trying to pretend not that we don't have emotions while simultaneously uh, erratically expressing those emotions that we pretend not to have. And, and I think that you're, you being very real and speaking to something that's universal while still being vulnerable and talking about these difficult things. I think that that, those are the types of things, that's the type of writing, that's the type of experience that people having a, a window into, um, will, I, I see that as a potential, uh, balm for sort of that disconnect that all of us seem to have from our day-to-day lives and our personal emotions. We pretend that we don't have them and then we live in reaction to them. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're at a time now and I think that we, we're still not through it yet. Uh, at some point, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll round the last corner. Uh, but then there'll be that moment of reflection as to what it is that we went through and just be able to express dealing with it. Cause in a lot of ways, if you're dealing in crisis in some varying level, it's not till you get through that crisis that, that then all of a sudden it's, it's the, uh, the collapse and the, the, you know, kind of a reconciliation of, 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 of it all in, in the gravity. Uh, so yeah, it's, and my style of writing again, being as introspective as it is, you know, um, I'm being, I'm very attuned to what's, what's going on right now. Uh, we are going through something, you know, I, I remember, in the first days of this, and I remember because I picked up my daughters for school, quote, for the last time, you know, what ended up being the last time. And then right. you just, you just saw people, you know, filling up their gas tanks every day just to keep it full. You saw them people then going into the grocery store and, and just getting whatever they could just so that they can have something extra. Again, they weren't know, they didn't know what they were preparing for. So they had to prepare for everything. And, uh, that's why we all ran out of toilet paper and, and, uh, it's funny. We actually had gone to Costco like that last week before everything went crazy. So we had plenty of toilet paper. We didn't have to worry about it, but like, I felt myself super fortunate around that time. Well, yeah. Not to break it, your, not to break your concentration. No, but, yeah, you but, know. but the, and it's like, you know, cause I've been around, you know, uh, circumstances of adversity so often it's, it's almost like, you know, how like you can, you can see like, Generally speaking, you can see that. You know, oh, you, you don't have to change your. That's fine. <laughs> you can see. You, you and I have known each other way too long for you to be worried about offending me on something as silly as that. You can see the, the, the leaves turn over when it, just before a storm is going to really come down. Uh, you know that 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 kind of like the dog sense of of mm-hmm. something is 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 near. And yeah, I, like when I, animals start acting weird right before an earthquake or something, they start heading inland. Whatever it is, and you know, I I, I had that feeling. So it's me buying an extra, you know, two or three cans of tuna fish, you know, every time I went to the store, you know, which was, you know, maybe twice a week. And, and there, I, so there I was not needing to panic, but knowing that something was going to happen. And I was yeah. already ready because I, because I, I, I'd been attuned to just being ready. Uh, you know, whether you're in, in DEA and a surveillance and you don't know if you're going to come back, you know, in an hour or the next day. So you got to make sure you have enough water, you have an extra snack, you have a change of underwear, da, 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 and you just, you're just ready. Um, and it's not a good way to live because you can't live in that heightened state forever. Uh, and I think that's where we've been now and it, we've been able to come down to, to varying levels, but in those early days, everyone's just like, they didn't know what oh, for was- the first two, three months I was a basket case. I mean, I, I handled it sort of okay, but you know, I mean, I, 
I gained a bunch of weight. I, I drank way more than I should have at the time. So like I, you know, I think most of us were just trying to, to manage for the first month or two, especially. Yeah. And again, for me, you know, it's just like, you know, my, my wife works in uh, a biotech industry. So she was technically, you know, one of those exempted, you know, positions. So she could, could keep doing what she needed to do and everything else. Uh, She's also probably more acutely aware as to where some of the danger lies. Yeah. But the thing was, she was, so she was off still doing work and not really aware of what was changing like in like, day-to-day life sort of the day-to-day life. So here yeah. I am, you know, day-to-day, you know, not, all right. So, so you pick up the kids for the last time. You're, you're kind of just trying to minimize the time that you're out. But when you go to the store, you're seeing people like nervously, almost like embarrassingly, like ashamedly you know, filling their carts with food. They, they, they know that they need to stock up or they feel like they need to stock up, but they don't want to be the one that takes the last thing. But mm-hmm. then there's that one lady, and I just take it all. She just like she's taking all the chicken. She's like, I'm gonna freeze it all. She says, she'll take it all. But you, you, she did. So my wife was was not introduced to what was like devolving in you know at the Vons, you know, down the street from where we lived, and and how you know you could drive by and you could you, you you're kind of shaking your fist at the fact there's a parking lot full of people and there's no one should be out and everyone is out shopping there, taking the last of the food. Uh, and, and so all that kind of churns and it, it just, it starts to play mind games with you is in terms of what you should be doing or need to be doing that she was unaware of just because it wasn't in her sphere. Sure. She, she, she didn't have to be, you know, introduced to it, but it's, it's, it's very odd. And, uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes, I'm taking mental notes. Um, it's going to be interesting to, to see for me. To, to read what reflections you have when we, I mean, I don't know what level of normalcy we'll have, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm personally a little bit uh, taking a uh, watch and see regardless of who wins the election on mm-hmm. November 3rd. I, I do not, do not anticipate peace and tranquility uh, for the first couple of days after the election. Um, yep. But, you know, we'll, we'll, well, I, I'm going to be very curious to read what you have on the other side of it. Yeah, um, uh, it's uh, I, I, I again. My, I'm at my best when I'm I'm introspective and when I'm just making observation and just setting the scene. And I had a lot of time to set the scene. Uh, you know, seeing, you know, like everyone. There was there was a time when the the uh, the beaches were still open. And it was just a bunch of people in cars. It's like they were at a drive-in movie, you know, just watching surfers. They're sitting there in their cars, windows rolled up. No one wants to, you know, I don't know how the germs are going to get around. So you sit there in your cars, but you still needed to see something. And it was watching these guys surf. And it it was just, it brought some semblance of normalcy. And then, but then they had, then then they say, nope, they make, they, they closed the gate, they locked it up and they couldn't go there anymore. And then, and and that's, that's been an interesting thing for me. I mean, like I, thankfully things have opened up, you know, like I, but for a couple of times that I went out, I went out once because I had a surf contest that ended on March 14th, Mm -hmm. right before everything through, you know, and then I didn't get in the water at all until April 1st, got in the water April 1st, then it shut down. I was out for a month. And for a while there, it was sort of like we could go but we had to walk a, a little bit further and you know, you could, you could get to the beach, but you couldn't park near it. But honestly, if it wasn't for getting into the water, even if I didn't surf, even if I just went down to the ocean, and d- dip my feet in, 
that that normalcy, that kind of connection with something that was unfiltered in its, you know, kind of the way I interacted with it. Yeah. That, that for me, that brought me back to living healthfully, living intentionally, doing something that was good just because it's good, not because it was performative, not because, you know, I'm desperately trying to hold on to some sanity that there was, there was no bad impact of that. Yeah. I wasn't around anybody, you know, I'm besides I'm, the joke is I read a long board. So I'm always six feet away from any away from people <laughs> when I'm in the water anyway. Um, but, but, uh, but yeah, that, but, that's, but I'll tell you when they started closing down the beaches and cause you know, at some point they're like, well, as, as long as people are out and everything else, you well, know, you know, honestly, I think Orange County kind of fucked it up for everybody, you know, cause like, like it was fine for a while. And then, well, I'll tell you what, so, so my, so my reflection on that. So, so again, I grew up in Connecticut. And sure. Connecticut had you had your small town beach that really, if you're only if you're a town resident, you can get in, uh, or you know, a state beach. And then for the most part, you had you had uh, neighborhoods that had their own private beaches. You couldn't set foot on there. And then uh, then you had some houses that actually owned the beach. Now in California, they don't do that. So they're basically and so yeah. we we come out here. And we're like, this is amazing. Yeah, you, no one can claim the beach. It's everyone's beach. So you have mile, and it's all wide and everything else. And you have trucks. You know, the hasn't always trucks. been that way. Actually, if you, yeah. if you look back into the history in the early 20th century here, but but you know, at least as of right now, that's the way it is. Right. So, but the thing is, though. So what struck me, and I, and I'm going to have a some sort of a reconciliation with California at some point, and I love California, but. And, and the beaches for everyone and everything else. But then it, it's at one point, you know, boom, it smacked in the head. Like no one gets to use the beach. They, they said, whoever they is, whether it's the mayor, whether it's the, yep. you know, the, uh, uh, county well, mayor Garcetti is particularly, I, I have particular issues with him. I'm thank God multiple days a week that I do not live in Los Angeles County. Yeah. But it's just like it, it then comes down to one person or a body of people that decide no one gets to use the beach. So the, yeah. the thing that's set aside for everyone is now not allowed for anyone at all. And it, it's there will be a reconciliation that I have to have in my head as to you know how this goes because um, it's just like this is our we should be able to be out there. And again, you know that that time hopefully is is coming gone for good. Uh, but, but it just having been denied that, and that, that was the, you know, like, like you had uh, alluded to, that was the, the one element of sanity that some people could get. They, yeah. could, they, they stayed to themselves, you know, for the most part until, you know, some, some people were, yeah. you know, screwing it up, but you just, you're just walking, you just, you're, you're getting some fresh air, uh, and, uh, getting some exercise. And that was the sanity that for a lot of people that, that they had. And then that when it was removed, um, it, it was, it was. So, so I, I view things a little bit differently after that. So, well, and I think most of us, um, most of us will look at things differently. Hopefully, and and that comes back to the you know fearless, uh, or I, I'd like to, I actually prefer courageous because fearless is has its own problematic aspects. But courageous, you know, uh, I I don't agree. I, I I can't stand Rudy Giuliani, but he did say. Uh, you know, gave a great definition of courage when he was mayor of New York back in 2001. I, I think he said this and whether he borrowed it from somebody else, even though I think he's kind of questionable in his ethics. Now I got to give him credit for the, his definition of courage, which, which is 
courage means being afraid and, and doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think some people may not be maybe more reactive, but I, th- I think there will be a change. And I, I think that those people who are willing to look at the truth, willing to kind of be reflective, do that introspection to that hard look on how did I handle myself during 2020? Mm -hmm. How did I, what did I let myself get sucked into? What, if I had to do it differently, what could I have done? What couldn't, what can we set in play so that the things that could have been avoided can be avoided if we run into this. I mean, they, they say that you know every hundred years or so we have a pandemic, and every hundred years we forget the lessons of the one we had a hundred years ago. Sure. Um, I don't know. Maybe we can do something so that in what to that twenty one twenty three or whatever it is, <laughs> you know. But we'll. we'll uh, I, I don't suppose you or I will still be around at that point. But well, well, that's it. The th- the thing of it is, so you have. So you have something dire that happens, you know, whatever the event is, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's, uh, you know, a leak in the boat and there's, there's no, you know, and it's how people respond. You get through it and then you're left looking at each other as to, I saw you do this. I saw you do that. You're the one who kept the candy bar for yourself, you know, and it's just like, it, it will, hopefully people will take some stock in themselves and other people as to, you know, a version of themselves that, you know, they would have done things differently. Uh, and sometimes it comes down to being the person that you want to be. Um, and I, I yeah, ho- hopefully, you know, some people take the good out of it. You know, there was a hell of a lot yeah. of people buying frozen pizzas, you know, the last frozen pizza in the aisle um, and, and not having some consideration for, you know, someone that didn't get to go to the store yet. Um, yep. so, and, and for me, you know, it, it came down, I, I work out of my, my garage. Uh, I, one bay has uh, all my workout equipment and a, a woman was like jogging by, and this was like in the middle of it, you know, the, in the thick of it. And she was just like older lady. And she's like, can I, can I borrow one of those weights? And, uh, I had no idea who she was. <laughs> I had no idea who she was. And she's like, she's like, I'll, I'll buy one off you. And it was just like one of the discs, you know, with a uh, Olympic weight, you know, discs. Uh, just like a little plate or something. A five to do pounds, something with, five yeah. pounds, two and a half pounds, whatever it was. And at first I'm just like, oh, this, girl, this lady's got some balls on her. And she's like, yeah, she's like, come back to me, ask me, do you take my weights? And, but I was just like, I, I, I kind of looked at it and it was just like, this is a woman who, and she, she had said, you know, she's like, she's a physical therapist. She works with Navy SEALs. She can't get to her stuff. She's, you know, she can't get onto the base to get the stuff where, wherever she's wow. working out of. Wow. And she's like, she just needed some weights. And uh, I was like, listen, all right. What, I said, uh, uh, here's a five pound. Here's a two. That's what she needed. Five pound, two and a half pound uh, discs. And I said, um, so just bring it back when you're done. And uh, she was just like, well, I, I don't know when that's going to be. And I was like, well, it's all right. Just, just bring, bring it back when you're done. Yeah. And uh, she, she offered to pay for it. This. And I'm like, nope. And, uh, sure enough, you know, there would be times that she would, and then, she, and then after that, I had no idea she was, and she's like, well, here's my number, here's my name. Uh, and then she would ping me periodically and say, you know, I'm, I still haven't, you know, so I've been able to get back mm-hmm. into it. I'm like, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I was able to work around it. It's not a big deal. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's one plate or two plates, right. you know, I, I'm sure you can manage. But, but to me at the end, and then at the end, there was the, there was the end point. And then, and then she, she had said, you know, I got my own stuff again and I'm going to just drop it back off. And she, and she I, I told her where to leave it. You know, I wasn't there that day. Yeah. Uh, but to me at the end, uh, the way I looked at it is I wanted to 
do something. They're, they're, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. know what, you know, I'm, I'm taking care of my family. I'm doing this and that, but there's like in, in a broader sense, I wanted to be able to do something. And here was someone who needed something and I, I could spare it and she yep. needed it. And it probably helped her get through whatever, you know, isolation that she was dealing with, the, the not used to the same routine that she was dealing with. It helped her get through. And so she got something out of it and I got something was my ability to try to help someone in some way. And so that was, that was a reflection of, of that time. And, and I hope that, you know, so I, I got something out of it and, and maybe people look into themselves and maybe they did something like that. Or maybe the next time something happens, they'll think that they could do something like that too. Well, let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you have any any uh, any last minute plugs before we close out? Because I, I know you have a couple of projects. I don't know if you're still keeping them in their infancy or can yeah. trying to keep the silos separate. So I'm. Uh, so there's uh, in trying to get through uh, the advertising for you know uh, the, the you know medium.com and everything else where my, all my material seems to just get lost in the fray. I ended up uh, building out a, uh, a modest platform called Pratalon. Uh, P-R-A-T-T-L-O-N.com. It's uh, a platform for uh, for bloggers, independent bloggers, and uh, different video, audio content uh, as time goes on. And it's just taking shape now. But it's it's a, a place that I can feature my writing. And uh, rather than just post my stuff directly to Facebook, I post a link yeah, to... Own your content, for sure. Babylon.com. And... Uh, uh, you know, that's, that's where I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, to build some things out, but, uh, but that's where I'm at. If anyone ever wants to try to find some of my writing, that's, that's a good place. Uh, and you have a couple of, you have a collection, at least one on Amazon now, right now, correct? Um, I, I have some, uh, not on Amazon, but I actually have some, uh, some anthology, um, publications that, uh, have been on Amazon, uh, Adelaide magazine. Uh, it was it was the uh, literary magazine that published some of these. Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought you also had a. You were talking at one point about putting a collection of some of your work. Oh as yeah, a, no, a I, haven't, book or I, haven't, I haven't. I haven't crossed that uh, that that threshold yet. Uh, okay. In, in terms of that, but it, that's something that I'm I'm, I'm tinkering with. Uh, but uh, in any case, there's anthologies uh, out on uh, Amazon uh, through Adelaide Magazine that my my work has been in, and then uh, and then the Pratalon.com website as well. Uh, one more spelling on that. One more time yeah, on the spelling uh, on that. Uh, P-R-A-T-T-L-O-N.com. Pratalon.com. Right on. Uh, well, hey, Jason, um, I I absolutely, when you get that book finished, I 100% want to have you back because uh, this has been an absolute fascinating conversation. I think, uh, you know, yeah. people's, through the, the medium of sound, people's eyes have been opened uh, to at least a, a different perspective than perhaps they would have otherwise gotten yeah no thank you thank you very much i i uh i really i I love what you're what you're doing with the uh uh with your podcast uh you're a a great interviewer and thank you uh, thank you uh, a great spirit and i i appreciate having gotten to know you you know uh (laughs) really appreciate having you on and for everyone listening adventure is a state of mind how you live it is up to you